0: Brexit. Remember it? Way back in the distant past of 2019, it felt like it was all the newspapers could talk about. It might feel like it's done and dusted, but the process is still rumbling on. We are absolutely determined to reach a fair deal with the UK.
1: We will do everything we can, but not at any price. They say that there are still the same sticking points around the the level playing field governance and, of course,
0: uh, fishing. The clock is ticking. What does all of this mean for the possibility of no deal? We've got an internal market bill that the government itself admits will break international law. MPs just voted through a bill refusing to guarantee food and farming standards after we leave the EU. And apparently we're moving the uk border to kent
1: we are at a grave national moment our gravest for generations
0: was of coronavirus we're trying to conclude a brexit deal vital for our country we need new trade deals where our word is our bond and this government
1: plays these appalling games
0: we're absolutely clear that we're going to stand up for our high standards in any deal we strike including with the united states And making sure that the high standards our farmers operate to will not be undermined. Um, And we want to make sure that people use a relatively simple process in order to get what will become known as a Kent Access Permit, which means that they can then proceed smoothly through Kent because they do have the material required. So, what exactly is going on? What will happen when the transition period ends on New Year's Eve? And what does it all mean for the UK economy? In this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're getting to the bottom of Brexit. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm very excited to be joined down the line by Marley Morris, Associate Director for Immigration, Trade and EU Relations at the Institute for Public Policy Research. Almost run out of breath. Hi, Marley. Hi, Aisha. Thanks for being with us again, returning friend of
1: the pod. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, so let's dive into Brexit stuff. So as I mentioned, it's been pushed off the front pages by loads of other stuff this year, and it's been quite hard to keep track of where we are in the process. I know the withdrawal agreement kicked in at the start of 2020, and that we're meant to have entered this transition period for leaving the EU. But Molly, could you give us a bit of a timeline of what's been happening this year?
1: Yeah, so we've we've been in the transition period, which means that officially we've left the EU, but basically more or less everything stayed the same. The only people that have really noticed have probably been the MEPs who have lost their jobs since January 31st. But for for most of us, things have just continued on the same, um, apart from, of course, all the massive changes and disruption due to COVID-19. But in terms of Brexit, nothing's happened. Where we are really is, is with the negotiations to look at the future relationship. And we've had those negotiations going on since we left. Um, and They've been taking place regularly between uh, Michel Barnier and the EU's chief negotiator and his counterpart in the UK, David Frost. And we haven't got too far. We've, we've made, there's been some progress, but there are still some real um, sticking points in the negotiations. And we've got this week, um, the uh, European Council uh, coming up, where originally that was meant to be a very firm deadline from the UK side where we'd Finally, either get a deal or the UK would walk away from the negotiating table. It looks like now that that deadline may shift a bit and we may be moving more into um, November. But the ultimate point is we need to get a deal. If we are going to get a deal, we need to get a deal by November so it can be ratified by the EU and by the UK before the end of the year. And that would avoid a no deal on uh, January the 1st, 2021.
0: Okay. I thought you were going to say we need to get Brexit done then, but you you didn't say that. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, you said the transition period ends on December 31st. So can you say a little bit more about what that means? So, you know, you've talked then about what's going to happen between now and then, hopefully, but am I right in thinking that if we don't get negotiations to where we want them to be and we don't get a deal, we just crash out with nothing on the 31st?
1: So if we don't get a deal, then yes, we won't have any agreement at all once we Uh, leave the single market and customs union on the 31st of December. But it's important to say that regardless of whether we get a deal or we don't get a deal, we will be leaving the single market and we'll be leaving the customs union at the end of the transition period because the deal that the government is trying to negotiate with you at the moment is quite a thin deal. So there will be big changes happening regardless of whether we get a deal or not. And that will mean all sorts of big changes to how we trade with the EU, uh, lots of new kinds of documentation and checks going on and goods going between the UK and the EU that weren't there before. Um, there obviously be the end of freedom of movement, so changes to immigration, all sorts of sector specific changes, so changes to how chemicals are regulated, uh, medicines regulated, and of course, changes to our security and access to EU databases. So all sorts of big changes are about to happen. And to be honest, most of those changes will happen, regardless of whether we get a deal.
0: OK, so something tells me that the Brexit won't be off the front pages for long then once all those those big changes come in.
1: No, absolutely not. And I think it's the key moment is 1st of January. I mean, we will see, actually, you know, after all these years and years of kind of, of arguing, we'll finally see, OK, what does Brexit really look like? Because then we'll see us leaving the single market and customs.
0: Oh, gosh, haven't we been through enough? Even like, the first bit of this podcast, I'm like, I just want to throw in the towel, Marley. Oh, no. Okay. All right. So let's get into specificities a little bit more. So moving into the present, the UK published something called the Internal Market Bill at the start of September. So could you talk to us, Molly, about what that is, what it does? Is it important?
1: Yeah. So the Internal Market Bill, um, I think on the face of it, the core purpose of it is to make sure that the kind of internal market of the UK keeps functioning after, after Brexit. And I think most of it, um, from the EU's perspective, is not that controversial. There are controversies around devolution, certainly from the Scottish government's perspective, for instance, there are parts of it that are very controversial. But the one element that was a surprise and that did cause a lot of controversy with the EU was sort of tacked onto the the bill towards um, the end. And it basically includes a number of specific provisions that would give the government powers to basically change or to disapply elements of the Northern Ireland protocol. And that was a key part of the withdrawal agreement that the UK and the EU agreed last year. So it's rather bizarre, I guess, because on the one hand, the UK and the EU made this um, agreement, it was signed off, uh, and then it's all been finalised in the past year. Only a few months ago, this was all being finalised and being touted by the government as a great success. And now we see in this bill there are various provisions that quite explicitly uh, say that it wants to give the power to be able to um, renege on elements of the withdrawal agreement.
0: Okay, so the bill means then that the UK could go back on previous promises about avoiding a a hard border in Ireland. So could we end up with a hard border in Ireland then? Is that what I'm
1: hearing? And, And what would that actually look like? I mean, I think it's probably unlikely that there'll be a hard border. I think what the problem here, I guess, is that the UK, on the one hand, has said it will do a bunch of things on Northern Ireland. And now it's saying, well, hang on a second, we might fancy to do the opposite instead after having made this agreement. And so there are very specific things where it's saying, For instance, when it comes to exit summary declarations on goods going from um, Northern Ireland to Great Britain, i it's saying, well, actually, you know, we we might do these in a different way to what was originally envisaged in the Northern Ireland Protocol, or on specific things around state aid, it might arrange those differently. So I suppose these were all the different parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol that said, look, this is what we need to have in place to avoid a hard border. And the UK has kind of coming back now and sort of saying we don't actually fancy doing many of these bits or, or or you know we might do them but we might not so it, it- From the EU's perspective, you can see it really raises alarm bells because it says, well, are you a serious and trusted partner? I think it's unlikely it'll get to the point of of there being a hard Irish border because even if the UK were to try to go back on the agreement, it would likely create um, a sort of dispute resolution process, it would go to the Court of Justice, there'd be various challenges and, I mean, probably in all likelihood the UK would eventually back down. So, I mean, I think that's where we are at the moment rather than getting straight on to having to turn to a hard border in, on the island of Ireland.
0: Okay, all right. So the bill is waiting for its second reading in the House of Lords. What do you reckon? Is it going through?
1: Well, the Lord, I think the Lords might push back. I mean, I think at the moment the EU is hoping that, and I think also um, opposition politicians, particularly the Tories that are concerned about the bill, are, are hoping that this will be kind of ironed out in the negotiations on the future relationship and that, these problems will kind of disappear and the government will, will change its mind and amend or retract those provisions in the bill itself. So hopefully it will kind of all disappear in the next few weeks. And I think that is probably quite likely. I suspect that the UK, if it does find an agreement with the EU, will, will want to kind of roll back on this because we know, for instance, that the European Parliament has made very clear they will not sign a agreement on the future relationship if this bill goes through as is so it doesn't make much sense why the uk would kind of try to steamroll this this through when there's potentially a deal on the table
0: Hmm. Okay. Doesn't mean it won't happen, though, does it? (laughs) No, no. (laughs) Uh, Oh, gosh. All right. Let's carry on then with some of the specifics. So this week, the House of Commons also voted through the new agricultural bill, which will decide what Britain's food system will look like after Brexit. Some MPs rejected calls from farmers and campaigners to enshrine food safety and animal welfare standards in UK law. Marley, why did campaigners think that that was important? And should we be worried?
1: Well, I think it is important and I can see why campaigners were concerned about this and they wanted extra provisions in the agricultural bill to ensure that we maintain food standards after we leave the customs union single market. And, And this is something that clearly the public back, we did some polling on this IPPR a while back and... very clear that there's strong public support for maintaining food standards. Even when the public are asked to kind of trade off between getting a deal with the US and maintaining food standards, the vast majority of both Remainers and Leavers plump for keeping food standards rather than a deal with the US. So I think this is something that has broad support. I mean, I think both environmental campaigners and the food industry and farmers also support this. So it's pretty broad support in the UK. The government has said on record that, you know, it agrees with the principles of this, does want to maintain high food standards. I think the risk is, I guess, that if you get to a point where the UK is trying to secure a trade deal with the US, it may be under pressure to allow imports of products that are below these standards It's not so much that the UK government's desperate to lower food standards, but that in order to get trade deals, in order to kind of to fulfill one of the key missions of Brexit, I guess, which is to get these trade deals, particularly with the US, it finds itself forced into a position where it ends up lowering these standards.
0: And I mean, what would that actually look like for farmers and consumers? I mean, what are some of the, I guess, worst case scenario concerns there? It it reminds me of conversations we've had more broadly about deregulation and exactly, as you say, this kind of race to the bottom that we potentially should be worried about when it comes to a post-Brexit economy. Yeah, what what are kind of some of the things that might come down the pipe if we're not taking these concerns seriously?
1: Well, I mean, the obvious ones that have been talked about are the chlorine-washed... Chicken. I knew that was coming. I knew uh, that chlorinated
0: chicken was popping up.
1: <laughs> uh hor- you know, Hormone-treated beef are the well-known ones where there are particular concerns and where there's been bans in the EU and the US is clearly wants there to be a change and is putting pressure. And there were, I think there are a lot of um, multinationals in the US that are arguing for this forcefully as part of the US's trade negotiation position. So I think that that's where there is a particular risk. I mean, there, there are other there are other concerns, obviously, that campaigners have about a US UK trade deal. I think there's also some concerns around pharmaceutical products, for instance, the risks around drug pricing and the US obviously is a much bigger partner than the UK. It will be able to throw its weight around a fair bit. And if the UK is desperate for a deal, then it may feel like it has to compromise in those areas. There's a bit of a debate at the moment, I think, about you know the UK arguing that will it maintain its standards on the one hand, but then also allow the import of these products from the US on the other. And that's obviously to the disadvantage of UK Producers, So I think there's a concern from both producers and from consumers in the UK about the potential risk of lowering standards.
0: Mm. OK, lots of risk. So let's carry on to dive into some more of these sticky points. So the UK government and the EU are currently obviously, in talks to finalise a trade deal. But some of the sticking points are fair competition. So the rules which ensure a level playing field between British and EU companies. So let's start with that, actually. I'm not going to list them all. Let's start with that. And then I'll kind of, uh, we'll do a hot seat where I just kind of hit you with the troublesome issue and then you come back and tell me why it's an issue and how to fix it. No, just why it's an issue. be good.
1: Yeah, how to fix it is probably above my pay grade, but I'll, I'll, (laughs) I'll give it a go on. (laughs) explain the issue I think so level playing field is one of the big issues and the basic principles here is that on the one hand the EU wants to ensure that any deal with the UK that has zero tariffs also has a basic principle that says you have a fair competition it doesn't want a deal where the UK and the EU are able to trade with, with no tariffs and no quotas but at the same time the UK is able to for instance, produce goods more cheaply because it's able to deregulate uh, its environmental legislation or it's able to lower its labour standards. Or, for instance, the um, the other issue that the EU are concerned about is that the UK will use its subsidies policy to subsidise British companies and gain an unfair advantage over EU companies that way. So I think the EU basically wants to set core kind of basic principles um, that will underpin the free trade agreement. And it's particularly concerned about the UK because it's a big partner um, that's very close to the EU um, and there's a lot of trade going on. So there's a particular risk from the EU side. From the UK side, it's not against the idea of, sort of very light touch provisions to ensure fair trade because obviously it wants fair competition as well. But the UK hates, as as you'd expect from a Boris Johnson government, hates the idea of anything that could affect its sovereignty. And it sees these requirements that the EU wants, particularly on state aid, but also on labour standards and environmental standards as potentially undermining its sovereignty and as creating a, a level of control over what the UK can and can't do on these policy area so that's where the ultimate issue is and it's particularly problematic on state aid because the EU is saying well originally the EU said we want you to basically follow our state aid rules after you leave the single market. So just keep following the rules that we currently have. And also, we, as the Commission, we kind of want to look over your shoulder and make sure you're following them the right way. So they really wanted to have quite a strict oversight over the UK. Um, the UK wanted the exact opposite. It wanted, you know, very, very light touch, kind of, you know, kind of almost like a gentleman's agreement. You know, we won't do anything too problematic. But they didn't hated the idea of having to follow EU rules and they hated the idea of having to kind of Go to the commission to make sure that its own decisions were correct. So I think that's the real challenge. How do you find a way to have a fair competition, but also the UK um, having this, this strong desire to maintain its sovereignty?
0: So the second one was on state aid. So you've ticked that one off. Next one, fishing. So fishing was given totemic significance during the uh, Brexit referendum. Marley, why are negotiations stuck on fishing? What's going on there? What's it going
1: to mean for fishers? So fishing is one of the big um, sticking points. In fact, it possibly is the biggest sticking point at the moment in the negotiations. So the reason it's at a sticking point, even though it's obviously a relatively small part of the UK and EU economies, is that actually the fishing trade between the UK and EU is, is very intertwined. The EU fishing industry does fish heavily in UK waters at the moment. Um, at the same time, the UK exports huge amounts of its fish to the EU. So there's a kind of interest in both sides here and the trading relationship is very, very closely integrated. I think that the ultimate um, difference is that on the one hand, the EU basically wants to keep the current system as it is. So it wants to be able to continue to access UK waters and it wants the fishing quotas to be set broadly in the same way that they are now so it's able to access the same level of fish um, in UK waters as it was before um, and it wants that to be a stable relationship that continues long into the future. The UK wants a very different system which is based on this idea called uh, zonal attachment where they effectively want to have annual negotiations on the shares of fish quotas that the UK and EU should have and it wants those shares to be calculated based on the share of stock that are located in the uk and the eu's waters and that would basically mean that the uk would be having much greater access to its fishing waters than it does now and the EU would have a much more limited access so it's kind of really a bit of a numbers game here i mean and it's a kind of classic uh trade negotiating sticking point in the sense that the eu wants more access to the uk's waters the uk wants to limit that access and have more control over its own waters. I think it's a particularly tricky one because their positions are are quite far apart at the moment and it's in the interest of some member states in particular, like France, for instance, to continue that access to UK waters because, as I say, they do currently fish quite heavily in the UK's waters.
0: Mm, I'm starting to spot a theme. Okay, so the last sticking point then that I want to hot seat you on is uh, how the UK and EU will settle any disputes that arise. So before we move on, could you talk quickly to that, anything that you know about where the contention is there?
1: Yes. So on on the issue of um, dispute settlement, this is obviously a really important issue for the UK and the EU, not least because of the latest um, fuss over the Internal Market Bill. Because now the UK is saying it wants to go back on its word over the withdrawal agreement. There's a particular concern from the EU side that the UK could kind of slip out of some agreements or could reinterpret the agreement in a way that it was not originally conceived. And I think this is particularly true on issues around level playing field. Um, Because on the level playing field issues, traditionally in in free trade agreements, there are very relaxed measures of doing dispute resolution there. So often these are done through consultation and not really enforced that much. It's handled very loosely normally. The EU wants a much stricter arrangement because it really doesn't want to have a situation where the UK is lowering its labour standards or lowering its environmental standards, but the EU can't do anything about it. So it wants to really embed some quite strict rules into the agreement that ensure that if there are disputes, there is an arbitration panel, that there is a way of... um, potentially um, enforcing sanctions, whether that's about financial penalties or whether it's about restricting the trade agreement, for instance, imposing some tariffs. So the EU wants there to be real kind of bite to the dispute resolution. Um, and also, potentially, it wants there to be a link to the European Court of Justice for any elements of the agreement that relate to EU law. From the UK side, the UK wants things to be relatively relaxed. It doesn't want to have the EU breathing down its neck it certainly doesn't want any link with the European Court of Justice, which would be totally in contradiction to its principles of sovereignty. So. There are clear disagreements there. Potentially, there's a way forward, I think. The more that the level playing field negotiations are resolved, so the stuff around state aid, the stuff around labour and environmental standards, the easier it might be to resolve dispute resolution because if both sides are happy with the agreement there, then it means it's less likely that there'll be a need for such strict dispute resolution because both sides will have come to a, a sensible agreement on that issue. Um, but yeah, it's another issue to watch out for, I think, in the coming weeks.
0: Mm. why don't we just say we don't need any of that just a gentleman's agreement on all of it i mean i would trust boris wouldn't you
1: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i think that's exactly the point yeah
0: yeah yeah okay so we need to move on i've got lots more questions and not much time so in other preparation for the transition deadline that we've been talking about there have been reports that the government is planning an internal border in kent mali what does that mean
1: yeah, so I mean, the the government has had to introduce all sorts of new systems to make sure that the border is ready for Brexit, and that's whether we have a deal or whether we have no deal, because there's going, to, as I said before, there's going to be really big changes to how we trade with the EU um, after we leave single market and customs union Um, and this particular issue around kent is about exporting so i think the government is concerned that as kind of lots of hgvs are kind of passing out through the ports that there will be potentially a real um, massive backup of lorries and you can have a real problem and because Lorries haven't properly prepared. They haven't got their documentation in place. Um, they haven't got their systems in order, and so they won't be able to export directly into the EU without having to fill out that documentation. That creates all sorts of problems with traffic jams. And so, in order to manage that system, the government has set up this Kent Access Permit process for HGVs that are planning to go into travel into the EU. And so. I think it's a kind of traffic light system basically where you're only allowed to access interkent if you've got all your paperwork in place and you've entered all your information onto the uh onto the online systems. I mean, I'm not sure it would be a, a formalized border but it, it certainly means that you would have a kind of quasi border for HGV drivers who are planning to get out into the EU and the government I think I said that it would want to monitor this and want to potentially issue fines to um to hauliers that don't follow the rules. So it's it's a kind of new twist in the turn in, in the Brexit um, story. I don't think we'd ever expected this to, to happen, but it probably is necessary to avoid chaos at the borders when we get to the beginning of next year because you know the UK can do what it wants to try and relax the import rules. It can, it can make things a lot easier. It has control over that because that's a unilateral decision for the UK, but it can't control what the EU does. You know, the EU um, is very unlikely to say, look, we're going to just make things easy on you and we're going to just, you know, exempt you from these rules. It's going to apply the rules to the UK just as it applies it to any other country outside the EU. And that will mean that there are lots of new barriers for companies exporting into the EU and it could mean a real headache for hauliers as they're traveling into the EU.
0: Okay, so let's start to zoom out uh, slowly. So as the trade talks kind of wear on, some people have speculated that the Prime Minister and his advisers secretly want the trade talks to break down so they can have a no deal Brexit.
1: Do you agree with that? I don't think so. No, I don't think that the government wants a no deal Brexit. I think politically, it would be very damaging for the UK government to have a no deal Brexit. I think It would potentially be quite damaging for relationship with the Scottish government. It would give um, the Labour party, I think, a a lot of ammunition. And I think it would likely have to result at some point in the UK coming back to the negotiating table after the beginning of next year. And so that could be potentially quite a humiliating position for the UK if it's forced to, to return back to the EU after having walked out on a deal. So I, I don't see why it's really in the UK government's interest to to really pursue a no deal. I think more likely is it's a lot of posturing at this stage and this is a kind of a warm-up for them to compromise and get a deal. And that's exactly what happened last year with the withdrawal agreement. You know, It looked like a deal wasn't in sight at all. It looked like the problems were just impossible to reconcile. But somehow um, Boris Johnson did compromise, did find a deal in the end. And I suspect the same thing will happen this time.
0: Mm. Okay, we'll see. So continuing our zoom out, let's talk about all of this in relation to the events of 2020. So some people are saying that far from softening the government's stance in trade talks with the EU, COVID has actually reinforced the case for no deal at the top of government. Um, Do you think this is true?
1: I suppose you could come to that conclusion. I'm not sure if there's a good argument for it. Mm. Um, I think Well, I suppose the arguments that you might make are that no deal gives you greater sovereignty and powers to do things your own way. And that's necessary under kind of crisis situation like COVID. I mean, I've heard some people argue that. I don't really see what powers you get under a no deal that you wouldn't get under a deal that somehow would mean that you would have an advantage in responding to coronavirus. I suppose you could argue potentially that the kind of chaos of a no deal might be hidden by the chaos of coronavirus, that somehow like people might not notice the economic damage because of the disruption caused by coronavirus. I think that's probably unlikely because the impacts of coronavirus, whilst clearly very severe, are quite different to the impacts of a no-deal Brexit. With coronavirus, obviously, the issues affect very particular sectors because of the shutdown, because of the, the lack of demand, whereas with Brexit the, um, I mean the no-deal Brexit in particular, it's really an issue of whether companies can import goods. It's a question of supply. Will there be availability of certain products? Will prices rise because they can't get products into the country? Will certain companies that are exporting to the EU at the moment um, really struggle? And not be able to fully absorb all the additional costs, or so indeed, will companies in the EU choose to um, import elsewhere? And so, companies that are trying to trade with the EU from the UK, just not able to um, trade in the way they do now. And also, the sectors are just different. I think so. The key sector that's being affected by coronavirus is probably hospitality, as well as transport, tourism. These are quite different sectors. The sectors are going to be affected by a No Deal Brexit, which is. Know, probably, I mean, in particular sectors like chemicals and sort of manufacturing, cars, the car sector, the agri-food sector, and so on.
0: So, just continuing to unpack this intersection between Brexit and COVID, do you think that if the UK had a closer relationship with the EU, it may have helped us to deal a bit better with COVID? And and by that, I mean an example of that is um some people have discuss the fact that the government's determination to deliver Brexit on its own terms has meant things like, for example, when the UK was involved in discussions with the EU around bulk buying ventilators and PPE, it didn't take advantage of that scheme. And therefore, there was a real shortage of PPE for the first few months of the pandemic. So yeah, do you think if Brexit wasn't happening and the UK was less determined to distance itself from the EU, we might have fared better during COVID?
1: I'm not sure it would make a huge difference in truth, because I think a lot of the challenges around COVID obviously are, um, you know, around public health and kind of economic measures that are relatively independent of Brexit, um, and obviously things that are very much a kind of national competence. But in a way, I think the issue is perhaps more the other way around. I think you can see that the process of delivering Brexit might be a lot more manageable without COVID, but... One of the real challenges that the government currently has is about preparing businesses for these big changes at the end of the year and making sure that businesses do have the right documentation, that they've applied for the, or all the right systems, that they know what to do once we leave the single market. And I think it's fair to say that businesses have been pretty distracted by coronavirus and if you then combine that on top of all the chaos last year, where the businesses were expected to kind of stockpile and we all kind of prepared for potential no deals on multiple occasions because of the confusions in Parliament, I think businesses have kind of had enough. You know, they've had they had all the problems last year. They now they have coronavirus on top, and I'm not just not sure they have the kind of headspace to be able to think about the prospect of a no deal or indeed even the implications of. Of a deal um, at the end of this year, and so I think that's where the risk is that actually coronavirus will potentially have quite a big impact on how businesses can adapt and manage the impacts of Brexit.
0: Mm. Makes sense. Okay, so I want to end with a question about how we talk about Brexit. So zooming out even further. For you, Molly, why do you think it is that Brexit is often reported as a kind of political drama, you know, a kind of sexy scandal rather than a set of decisions which do have real material consequences? Well, first of all, do you agree? (laughs) And second of all, do you think that that style of talking about it affects the way people engage with it?
1: yeah that's a really good question, and I think you're definitely right. I think it does it, I suppose the last four years, yeah, the conversations about brexit have been pretty kind of abstracted they haven't really been related to the actual material implications of many of the decisions at play. I suppose the reason is that a lot of the impacts haven't happened yet in a sense we're still talking about something that hasn't really happened, obviously i've talked about various possible options today, but it's hard to know really like what the actual impact of a of a no-deal or a free trade agreement, Canada-style Brexit will be. I mean, it's 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 really hard to say exactly what the impacts will be. And so it does kind of live in the kind of realm of speculation to some extent. And so that's kind of good material for commentators to see it as quite a fun political argument, even if it does have or it will have some quite serious real-world impacts and i think the other thing of course is that it was a massive political debate because of the nature of the referendum i think if the uk just decided to leave the eu without a referendum it would be a different conversation but because it led to those kind of quite polarized debate it became much more of a kind of political conversation rather than something that has real-world impacts but it's worth saying you know whilst as you bring it up there are some really important real-world impacts for individuals i mean one thing we haven't brought up so far is the impact for EU citizens living in the UK. You know, they have felt some impacts already because they've had to apply for the EU settled status scheme. And indeed, there is a risk that if they don't apply in time, that they will be effectively shut out of the immigration system, that they won't have an immigration status and they could indeed face the, the impacts of the hostile environment. So you know, there are some really important real world impacts that perhaps aren't getting enough attention at the moment because of this kind of big bit of argument. And of course, it's kind of all been surpassed by COVID-19. But I think it will come back um, back with a bang at the beginning of next year.
0: I mean, it certainly seems so from what you've laid out. I'm terrified now. I was, I was you know, already deeply troubled. And now this is a, another layer. But no, thanks so much, Marley. There's, you know, the, the issue of migration that you raised is obviously a crucial one. And there's tons of other things we haven't been able to talk about. But I am consistently astounded by your encyclopedic knowledge um, of Brexit um, and the machinations of, uh, of the EU and everything that goes along with it. So thank you so much for joining me, Marley Morris. If people want to find out more about your work or hear more from you, where can they go? What should they read?
1: Oh, um, well, there's, um, there's lots more on the IPPR website. We've, we've doing, we're doing a kind of regular update, in particular on the level playing field negotiations. So do check that out on the IPPR blog. And we've got lots more reports on Brexit from the last few years uh, on the publication page. So do check it out.
0: And are you on Twitter? And
1: I'm on Twitter, yes. Yeah, and I I will be trying to do more tweeting over the next few months in particular. So yeah.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. That is it for today's weekly economics podcast. Lovely listener, but we'll be back next week. Don't worry. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at NEF on Twitter. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Ayesha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.